Living Wells for Banks. This is Industry Focus Financials Edition. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. Today is April 18th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is analyst Jay Jenkins. Hey, how are you? Uh, hey, Gabby. Glad to be here. Awesome. Um, this is totally random, but my mother wanted to let you know that she thinks that you have a lovely voice. <laughs> That's very sweet of her. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. She she told me last night. She was like, "Gabby, you should really, you should really tell Jay Jenkins he's got a nice voice." And I was like, "Okay, well, I can do that for you." Um, anyway, so before we get started into the meat of our episode, I wanted to thank uh, Alex Grayson, Gord from West Kelowna, Canada, Michelle Bilal Rasul, and Mohammed Albin Sala for writing in about last week's episode on writing. We love getting mail, especially feedback on what you think about the shows. And speaking of which, we are gearing up for another mailbag episode. So send in those questions to industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Um, so the, today's episode, we are going to talk a little bit about bank earnings and a little bit about living wills. And I want to start with the living wills because this is a really interesting concept. Um, the living wills are something that uh, that the federal government came up with for the for the big mega banks, right? So the the people who got into the most trouble, well, I mean, minus the small banks that just completely went under, but the people who got into the most trouble during the last financial crisis, they want those banks to put together an action plan for what they would do if another financial crisis happened. That's right. So it's really these big systemically important banks that they're most worried about, uh, Gabby. And the idea is that if something were to happen again, like what happened in 08 and 09, or perhaps even worse, the government wants to have kind of an idea of what we're going to do. Like, what's the contingency plan so that they don't have taxpayers don't have to bail out, you know, a Bear Stearns or a Washington Mutual or any of the banks that you know survive, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whoever. All of these huge banks with trillion dollars of assets that you know could really move the needle of the entire global economy if they failed. What are we going to do? You know, if if it hits the fan again, how, how are we going to deal with all these assets? The derivatives books, all these things are so complex. Everything's so interrelated around the world. We need to get in front of this, and so that's kind of the whole idea. Uh, right, and this isn't a new concept for the federal government, right? Like we have Dodd Frank, and um, on a more international scale, we have the uh, Basel Three regulations. Um, so this is something that people have been thinking about, and this is just one more facet of that. Uh, so the, the banks that are going to be included in that are J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, uh, Citigroup, Bank of America, and um, who else? Is USB on there? Uh, you know, I'm not 100% sure. There, it is. I forget the exact threshold, but Morgan Stanley was included. I think Goldman uh, was also included. It, it really boils down to these large, systemically important banks. Uh, as I said, that you know, if these banks get in trouble, all of us are in trouble. Uh, as opposed to, like, say, a local community bank, where their assets may be a few hundred million, which is a lot of money, a lot of assets, but it's not going to tip the scale uh, of you know the U.S. economy and certainly not the global economy. Definitely. Um, and the big news this week is that the eight major mega banks that everyone kind of has their eyes on, almost all of them failed. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty ugly. the The exact words were the by the FDIC and Federal Reserve for most of these banks were not credible. Their plans were just not credible. And that's, I mean, that's about as close to a punch in the face as I think you can get in, in the banking world. Yeah. The only the only bank that kind of scraped by was Citigroup. Um, but they they didn't do great either. They, I mean, when I yeah. say they scraped by, they got like a D plus, right? Like technically Correct. you didn't fail, but it's not great Correct. either. 
the way it works is the FDIC and the Federal Reserve each kind of get a vote, I guess you could say. So there's two governing bodies that you know give a pass-fail. And Citigroup got a pass from one but a fail from the other. Um, and that's sort of the squeaking by part because everyone else – oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I got that incorrect. Citigroup was the only one who passed from both. Uh, Goldman and Morgan Stanley got a pass from one but not the other. Uh, and then everyone else failed straight across the board. Right. And so the- it was a pretty poor showing by, by our mega banks here in the US. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I believe the FDIC and the Federal Reserve told Citigroup that like while they passed, it was just barely. Like they they thought exactly. it was not a great plan. <laughs> regardless, Skin of their teeth. absolutely. You're yeah, right. and sometimes I don't know if there's any uh, teachers out there, but sometimes when you're grading, <laughs> you get to these 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 uh, essays that aren't that great, but you're they're so much better than the other ones that you read before that you're like, fine, <laughs> I have to give someone a pass. <laughs> someone has to pass. Yeah, you get that feeling. I wonder if that's what happened with Citigroup. <laughs> you know, there, there's really no telling. I was I was reading through all the news and, and kind of diving in a little bit more deeply than just you know the headlines that you'd see on on the news or on online. And a lot of the things that they, they were, these banks were criticized for, some of them you just kind of shake your head and, and you know how do you guys not have your your handle have a handle on this? Like Wells Fargo, for example, was criticized for their legal structure and some of their governance uh, policies and procedures. And then they also found material material errors where they just like you know got the math wrong. It really brought into question about quality control and accuracy, and you almost got the feeling like the Federal Reserve was like you know Wells, are you even taking this seriously? Yeah. This and is- then on the other the flip side, J.P. Morgan had J.P. Morgan's so complex. It's really I don't know how anyone could wrap their head around the whole bank. Uh, their criticism revolved around how they deal with uh, moving money overseas, you know, because they're. Their investment banking side is so complex and worldwide. They've got money moving all the time everywhere. So apparently the protocols for dealing with that in a crisis or in a liquidity crunch were not up to snuff. And then, of course, their derivative book, which which is the largest in the world by far, it's just so – it's like a plate of spaghetti. It's like the largest plate of spaghetti in the world. How do you even begin to to figure out what's going on in that big pile of, of contracts? Uh, and the Fed was not not okay with with their plan for dealing with all that complexity and unwinding it in a reasonable way. Uh, so it's re- the errors really are across the board. I guess to my point, from the simple stuff like what we saw with Wells to J.P. Morgan's just overwhelming complexity, the banks just they kind of failed across all aspects of what we were trying to accomplish here. Yeah. So I guess the first question investors or listeners would ask themselves is: Is this something to worry about? Well, it's to me. There's kind of two angles on this. One, like Wells Fargo is a good example of this, is if they're not taking this seriously, if they're making material er- errors in this, what else are they? Where else are they making material errors? And so, for an investor, you know, that's got to be kind of concerning. It's like several years ago when Bank of America miscalculated their capital. You know, the calculation was off only by like a basis point or three, so very very small percentage. Um, but, but it brought still. into question, like, what are they doing? Do they under, really understand what they're, <clears throat> where, where everything is and how it's flowing? Is, are their spreadsheets correct? You know, is their accounting really correct? Um, so that, on the yeah. one hand, that, that's somewhat troublesome. But I think in the grander scheme of things, these, these living wills are important. But for investors, I think it's just sort of a checkbox that the regulators are going to make the banks do. It, I don't think it has any uh, indication that the bank's underlying businesses are going to do better, worse, or otherwise. Particularly, in, I keep coming back to J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, but during the financial crisis, arguably they they went through the whole crisis uh, better than any other bank, perhaps in the world. These banks are really well capitalized, really well managed. They've got great liquidity. Uh, you know, they really seized the opportunity and, and were able to absorb a lot of new assets over yeah. that period of time. And you know, the, the fortress balance sheet. And so, from from that perspective, 
you know, you got to have kind of have faith in this fortress balance sheet concept and that these banks will probably be okay. Um, and it's not just living that. Living will or not. Yeah, with the living wills, like, it would be great if they had a plan just in case there was another financial crisis and they did fail. But you have to understand with all of the regulations, with the, with the beefed up regulations that the federal government has given these banks, the likelihood of them failing is increasingly less every year. I totally agree. The, just, the, the new liquidity requirements to me were the biggest step toward <clears> doing that. And then the capital requirements on top of that. So you have this nice new cushion of, of cash. So if the markets go illiquid, they'll still be okay. They'll still be able to you know, pay bills and, and keep the economy moving. And if they do start mounting losses, they've got all this new capital you know, based on these really high-quality assets. Uh, so to me, eh, it doesn't matter. Yes, it's an important step. Yes, it's important for them to be thinking about it. But is it going to make the stock move higher or lower over the next you know, 12 or 18 months? I very seriously doubt it. Yeah, so. not unless they end up failing this like eight times in a row. And I don't Correct. really know why any of them would. Correct. That would be a big time negative from a management perspective, which, uh, you know, for a value investor, which is kind of what we preach here, it starts with management. You know, these are the folks making the decisions that run the company. So if they can't get it together to get this right between now and, you know, I guess October is when they have to, to fix all these problems, uh, that would that would be bad. I would imagine some people would get fired for that. Yeah. Speaking of how the banks are doing and how their stock prices would be doing, do you want to talk about earnings? All the mega banks have reported. Absolutely. It's earnings season. And last week, all of the four mega banks in the U.S. reported. Uh, It was kind of a case, Gabby, of of good news, but bad news, but also kind of like mucky. what What are we really doing here? It's kind of a muddy situation, I think. So the positive, the good. All four megabanks beat earnings expectations. Uh, Citigroup beat by seven cents. Uh, JP Morgan beat by nine cents. Bank of America by a penny. Uh, and Wells Fargo by two pennies. So that's really good news. Yep. Uh, you know, it's better to beat than to come up short. Unfortunately. And, yeah. So, and, and the other good news is that the stocks are up, you know. Oh, yeah. That is, that is, that is great news. Yay for all of them, so, especially Bank so, of America. I believe you can make it, buddy. But, that's right. but for the past five days, uh, all four of the mega banks have outpaced the S and P 500. Uh, Wells Fargo up 3.3 percent as we're recording this, while the other mega banks are up seven to nine percent, almost 10 percent over the week. So that's a pretty healthy jump. Um, so that's awesome. That's great for investors. We you know we want the stock chart to go from the lower left to the upper right, and that's what they've been doing this week. Right, but um, unfortunately, the reason that we have good news to begin with is because analysts thought that the banks were going to do worse than they did. Like that's, that's the only exactly reason right. they did okay to begin with is because analysts were like, "You guys are going to have a terrible quarter." <laughs> that's right. That's exactly the truth. They did less bad, uh, and it's it's really when you dig into the numbers, it's it's pretty ugly, uh, particularly from a short term perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, profit change from the fourth quarter to to the first quarter were down uh, at every single mega bank, ranging from say four hundred million dollars down all the way to one point three billion dollars down at Citigroup, uh, which is a pretty sharp decline. Um, so that's not good. Revenues were down, pressure top line and bottom line. Um, but now I would I would want to point out that uh, well let me preface this by saying uh, trading revenues were a big driver, and we'll dig into that a little bit more in a second. But we should have anticipated this, and the markets did anticipate this, you know, with the lower expectations because if you remember the bloodbath in the markets to start the year, you know, it was the worst start. I forget exactly how long, but the first five trading days were just absolutely terrible. January was horrible. Everybody was freaking out. Uh, but if you look at the chart now, I think it's important for long-term investors to remember that you know the S and P is basically back to where we were in December. So we had all that stress and drama, and we're okay. 
we're yeah. back where we were. For nothing, really. All that stress yeah. and drama for nothing. That's right. So keep long term, and you know, and you'll you'll add years to your life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The other, the other thing to keep in mind with these earnings is that none of it was unexpected. You mentioned trading revenues, and all of the banks like came came out before earnings and said, listen, trading revenues are down, and that's going to drag down our profit. That's exactly right. All of them said that. And like you said, a lot of that is related to the, to, what did you call it, the bloodbath of January? It was, it was gnarly, for sure. <laughs> and, that's, and so to the trading revenue, like I've got some statistics here to kind of paint the picture. Uh, J.P. Morgan, we've already kind of described them, you know, as having the big derivatives book and trading operation. Sixty-six percent of their overall top-line net revenue decline was driven by uh, drop in trading uh, revenue. Forty-three percent at Bank of America, thirty-one percent at Citigroup. Wells Fargo doesn't really, you know, mess with the trading business very much. So their yeah. their They're trading m- revenue was actually uh, down two hundred million dollars, which is fifty percent. Decline, but for them, that that hardly moves the needle on their twenty-two billion dollars in top-line revenue. Right, because Wells Fargo. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Wells Fargo is more of a retail bank for our listeners. Uh, Retail banks specialize in loans and like more traditional bank products as opposed to trading, which the other ones all have a hand in. Exactly. You think of Wells Fargo as like a very, 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 very large community bank. They make home loans. They you know manage money for a brokerage account and retirement accounts, that sort of thing. Make some commercial loans, and that's—I mean—that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously more complex than that, but the, fundamentally, it's—it's it's pretty simple. So. Yeah, it's not like if you—if you are looking for an easy mega bank to to start your analysis on, Wells Fargo is definitely it. Because J.P. Morgan, like, so you look at some of those income statements and balance sheets, you're like, I have no idea where all of this money is coming from or where it's going. It's very confusing. I don't even know what half of these business segments are. But Wells Fargo is definitely—it's just like a small bank scaled up. The numbers are just I a lot bigger. Totally agree, and I'd even add to that point. That's that's a good good advice. I'd look at U.S. Bank Corp as well. That's another bank similar to Wells Fargo and how they do business. And I'd say Citigroup is another one to avoid. Yeah, their income statement is is chaos. Like it's it's extremely hard to figure out Citigroup just because their operations are so vast and so worldwide. Um, yeah, I Citigroup is it's a very interesting bank to me, and. Um, Citigroup is a challenge, I'd say. <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like I'm turning into my mother as I age because that's exactly what she says about boys. I don't boys that she doesn't like that I bring home. They're very interesting, Gabby. <laughs> um, so another another reason uh, that revenue is down with these banks is because of the energy crisis. And when I say energy crisis, I mean that oil is really low. Not that we are right. hurting for oil. It's not. It's that's not the seventies. <laughs> That's right. Everyone is talking about energy this this earnings season. It is uh, ripple effects are being felt almost through any and every industry, uh, and banking is on the bleeding edge of that. You know, outside of the actual oil and gas companies themselves. Now, and to your point, you said uh, you called it a crisis, and I, let's temper that. And I've got a, a data point here uh, to kind of push that point. Goldman Sachs recently put out a report estimating that the banking industry had total exposure. Uh, lending credit exposure in the energy industry of about 2.5% of total assets. So that's a lot, right? And you're talking trillions and trillions of dollars. 2.5% is a huge amount in raw dollar terms. However, in 2007, almost 33% of the banking industry assets were composed of those mortgage assets that you know went south so quickly and caused the financial crisis. So 15 times, 10, 15 times more than what we see in the energy industry today. So it's bad, but it's nothing like it was in 2007. So even if energy stays at this level you know, indefinitely, 
the probability of this turning into something crisis level is, is pretty low uh, in terms of the banking industry. So. Yeah, it's it's again, it's not stuff to to freak out about right now, especially these really big mega banks. These are the guys that are insulated from from oil problems. It's it's the really small oil patch banks that are kind of new that don't have a history that don't really know how to ride the ebbs and flows of the oil industry. Those are the ones that are going to be in a lot more trouble or the community banks that are reliant upon those oil communities. Those are the guys that are going to be in trouble, not not the big mega banks. Absolutely. It's the concentrations that get in trouble. If you rely too much on one type of loan and then that type of loan goes bad in mass, those are the banks that, that really get in trouble. You know, that's Washington Mutual, Bear Stearns. These were basically mortgage securities, uh, balance sheets were all mortgage securities. And that's the reason they failed and, you know, Wells didn't and JP Morgan didn't. Um, but anyway, to the point to point today, these earnings, uh, real quick, I just wanted to point out you know, the impact that these energy loans are having today is significant. Uh, so we talk long-term, this is probably not the end of the world, but it is having a big impact. Uh, banks put aside cash every quarter for things that they think might go wrong. They call it their provision for loan and lease losses. And they take that cash and they put it into a pool on their balance sheet called, called their credit loss reserves. Uh, and so the impact of this is if they think loans are going bad or as loans begin to go bad, it hurts the income statement because banks have to take that cash as an expense in their provision and move it to the balance sheet kind of as a rainy day fund. And we saw all the mega banks and most regional banks are putting aside more money this quarter because of those energy loans. Bank of America put aside almost a billion dollars, $997 million. Uh, Wells Fargo increased its loan loss reserves for the first time since 2009 adding $200 million. So again, this, you know, this is not peanuts. This is a lot of money. No. JP Morgan, you know, nearly doubled its reserve. I'm sorry, its provision, increasing it 88%. So this is having a material impact on, on earnings. Right. Uh, even if we don't really think it's going to be a long-term, you know, bit major problem, uh, it is definitely a problem. Yeah. The, the, so for our listeners, part of the reason it's kind of a big deal that they're putting aside more money is that that's money that they could otherwise use for investing or for giving out in loans. So, they're sacrificing the ability to make money temporarily just to hedge their bets against oil going completely belly up. You're exactly right. And there's a flip side. If the if oil prices rebound more quickly than people expect and things kind of get better, that money in the rainy day fund can be re- reversed essentially and it can come back to the income statement as a positive instead of as an expense as a negative. Um, so down the road this could be a boost to earnings as opposed to today, you know, it's a headwind. Yeah. So and the final factor that's been kind of hitting uh, bank earnings is that, although we don't know exactly what's going to happen with the interest rate, I think we've talked about on the show before how interest rates are like looking into a crystal ball. It does look like the Fed is going to very, very, very slowly raise them. So that's not really going to help boost banks' income. So until until they start raising them to a little bit higher levels, banks are just not going to make as much money as they as they could. That's exactly right. The question, that's the trillion dollar question is how quickly will they raise them? And so there's a million factors that go into that. It's impossible to predict. I won't even you know, waste yeah. your time with a guess. It could be a year. It could be six months. It could be two years. There's really no way to know. However, knowing that and knowing that most people think the, rate, the rise in rates will be slow, you, as an investor, you really should be looking for banks that aren't just kind of sitting back waiting for rates to rise to solve their earnings problems. You want to find banks that are out there hustling, finding new ways to make money, new ways to attract customers. Uh, who are the banks that are attacking the problem head on and not just kind of sitting back and waiting? Uh, those are the banks that I think you'll see this earnings season and as we move forward quarter by quarter, those are the banks that will continue to outperform. They're the, ones, they're the ones who will have 
premium valuations. Uh, they're the ones who will increase dividends over time. Uh, everyone else will kind of be sitting back and just waiting, stagnant. Uh, yeah. you, know, and and you don't want to go sideways. You want to go up. The way to look at this, if you're looking at 10Ks or 10Qs, is to look at the split between interest income and non-interest income and figure out how banks are making their non-interest income because that's the that's where they're making money when interest rates are low. <clears throat> or that's Absolutely. one of the best ways for them to make money while interest rates are low. So we are just about out of time, so I want to wrap up the show. I have a couple of announcements that I was told to give you all, which is that we will soon be available on Spotify in some countries, but definitely the United States. Also, our new mobile app is coming out on Friday, April 22nd. Just go to appapp.fool.com on your iPad or iPhone to download it. You'll be able to read articles and, more importantly, listen to podcasts, which is very exciting because then you get to listen to me all the time. (laughs) Um, As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks. Please don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. Email us at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus with any of those mailbag questions. Thanks very much for joining us, and y'all have a good day.